Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. We are recording today as Liz Truss has just walked into number 10 Downing Street as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom for the first time. We're going to share our snap observations here on the pod about her victory and the appointments to the cabinet that we know about so far before sharing the edited highlights from our live Twitter event where we discuss the impact of the new executive in London on Wales and Welsh politics. Hostage to fortune somewhat, as we were starting this space, not all the cabinet appointments had yet come in. So, Kerry, what's your thoughts on today's events? Well, gents, I'm still taking it in. No rash judgments. Not going to go with the common social media view that Liz is a hapless, uncharismatic robot type, and we're we're on a downward spiral with the worrying things we've got ahead of us. Not just cost of living, but climate change. We've got to hope that something comes forward which makes this winter more palatable for people who could really suffer. So I'm going with it. Although it's not my politics at all, I'm hoping that something is delivered which makes the country a little bit more appealing than what we've really been seeing over the summer. The cabinet, their names, which a lot of them have only really come to me when over the summer, when some of them stood for Tory party leader and PM. So they've obviously uh, heightened their profile. But Matt... You know, you might have a little bit more in-depth knowledge about some of these names that are coming forward. Can you talk us through those? You know, I thought you were a bit. Jo- yeah, I thought you were going to do a Joe Lycett on us then for a second, uh, Kerry. I, I wasn't. I thought. I thought that was. A, I, I just very think, fair. You were very. No, fair. no, no. I just think this this winter it, it seems quite twee by a lot of people about what, and not us, but what some people are facing. And, you know, when you scratch the surface, there are people who are in undeniable trouble with the bills that we're suggested they're going to face this autumn, this winter. And businesses, which I don't think really have got the focus, nor public services, on what their energy bills are going to be. I think potentially it, it's one of the most serious crises this country could have. And, you know, I, I don't know if it's really seen at that just at the moment. I mean, there was, I mean... <laughs> Obviously, I was making a, a joke relating to Joe Lycett on the weekend on the Coonsburg show, but I think there's a serious point in there too, is that, as you say, Kerry, so much of the political coverage we get is so surface deep. We see politicians playing the game most of the time and not really actually boiling down into the issues. And due to time constraints of many of these interviews, the journalists don't really have time to press them and still cover a broad range of subjects either. So when Joe Lysett starts parroting the lines that you expect to hear from politicians, that's when it becomes satirical, not because that's not what they say, but because he exposes the ridiculousness of the way that politics is treated uh, to a greater or lesser extent in the UK. On the appointments, and I'm sure we'll get into this more throughout the, the Twitter space that we're about to do, I think that the people she's already appointed were, I mean, this is this has been long trailed now. Theresa Coffey, Kwasi Kwarteng, Suella Braverman, uh, James Cleverly. We sort of knew these appointments were coming. Very, you know, it's very interesting to see that not a single one of the great offices of state is being held by a white man, which is, I think, the first time that's ever happened in, in history. And, and while it may be diverse by those terms, ideologically, this is an incredibly right-wing 
uh, appointments list so far. This is taken mainly from one part of the Conservative Party, which is a very interesting move when Liz Truss has just won the election with the smallest mandate ever received in this form of the Conservative leadership contest without the backing of, of the majority of her MPs. So a very interesting choice so far from Liz Truss. You would assume that those people who supported Sunak will be given jobs, junior, junior ministerial jobs in, in government. Uh, there may be a few lower down jobs in the cabinet also, but from what we've seen brief, that doesn't seem very likely. I know a lot of my friends who are interested in what's going on in the Home Office had thought things couldn't get any worse than Pretty Patel. Uh, and I think with Suether Braverman, the former Attorney General, who hugely politicised that, that role that was previously designed to provide impartial advice to government, who has made a huge raft of promises relating to um, deportations and threats to the Human Rights Act. I think there's a lot of people who are very worried by that. So if you're a Conservative and you're on that part of the party, it's a very good day. But for everybody else, it might be worrying times ahead. Rich, did you have any uh, top-line thoughts from what you've seen today? Uh, yeah, just a couple. Uh, so one thing just I think was a really good spot by Adam Evans, formerly of uh, Cardiff University's Wealth Governance Centre, was that Theresa Coffey would appear to be the first female Deputy Prime Minister. You know, everyone will know Deputy Prime Minister is a bit of a flaky role. It's more of a kind of figurehead. It doesn't really have much substance to it, and it can be uh, disappeared at will. But um, nevertheless, I think it's one more of those situations where the Conservatives can demonstrate the fact that they have had not only multiple female prime ministers and leaders these days, but also a deputy prime minister, uh, which further perhaps illustrates Labour's um, lack of success on gender parity and leadership of women in the party. Um, I think just to very quickly say that much as it is somewhat trite, I think that there is a solid observation about how socially awkward and terrible an orator Liz Truss is. I don't think that that is trivial when your main job as a politician and a political leader is to persuade people of the righteousness of your cause and that they should support you. you people may say deeds, not words, but words also matter. Um, and I think uh, there will probably be a more than a few folks in uh, Labour HQ who will look at uh, Liz Truss and think, oh, well, that's, um, that's going to be 1-0 to us on Wednesday. Um, although, you know, Let's see what happens. And just finally, I just think that her, as as a writer, occasional writer, I have to say, I think her her speech as prime minister was somewhat lame. Um, it was not, uh, it did not quicken anybody's pulse. I can imagine even the most loyal supporters. Um, and there were three notable omissions, which I think possibly indicate more by their absence than if they were present. And those are net zero, leveling up, leveling up would appear to be dead if it was ever alive, um, and there was no mention of the four nations of the United Kingdom, which I think, if everything we are led to believe about David Frost's closeness to the Liz camp, um, is a suggestion that relations, particularly as we'll be discussing in the space later on, between the four nations of the United Kingdom, are going to be under more strain uh, under this administration than perhaps they were even under the last one. Yeah, I can't help but agree on both those things, really, Rich. I think even if you saw in her acceptance speech on Monday uh, the way that she said that um, Boris Johnson had, you know, was was loved from Kiev to 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 Carlisle, 
stopping a little short of the Scottish border there, wasn't she? I, yeah, I think that was Carlisle in West Ukraine, obviously, because... Uh, <laughs> and just to prove quite how live we are going on this, uh, Chris Heaton-Harris has just been confirmed as the Northern Ireland Secretary. Uh, that's obviously that's been such a problematic role. They've tried to get num- they've tried to persuade a number of people to take that role, haven't they? Penny Mordaunt, Robert Buckland, various other people. There's a reason why that is perhaps one of the less well-known appointments in this cabinet, is because that role is going to be absolutely crushed over the coming years, um, as we all anticipate that a Liz Truss-led UK government will either continue its attritional approach to the European Union with regards to the Northern Ireland Protocol, or it may even do something such as trigger the famed Article uh, 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, in the near future. And, and, you know, the person holding that post is going to be at the focal point of an awful lot of stress in the months and years to come. So um, I hope that uh, Chris Eaton-Harris has uh, had their Weetabix this morning, because it's going to be a long, long couple of years. Interesting for Chris Heaton-Harris's appointment because he is widely regarded as quite a competent minister, but he is, again, very much from the right of the Tory party. So I think we can see a, a trend emerging here. We here are about to join our Twitter space, and we hope that you enjoy the discussion that follows. So, yeah, thank you very much for joining us today. And what a day it is. It's a very significant day, not only because this is Here I's first ever Twitter space, but of course, I think the slightly bigger news is the is Liz Truss is finally in Downing Street. So I want to thank everyone who is listening to us now and also the guests who have joined to talk us through what this means for Wales. I think that you will see a number, we can already see a significant number of fairly strong ideological figures in the appointment of Liz Truss's cabinet. I think you see the appointment of Kwasi Kwarteng, Suella Braverman, James Cleverley, uh, as we were just talking on uh, before this space, the appointment of Chris Heaton-Harris as Northern Ireland Secretary. Whilst, you know, viewed by very many as, in at least some cases, fairly competent ministers, they all do come from the ideological right of the Conservative Party, which is a very interesting decision from a Prime Minister who has just been elected with the the smallest winning margin of any Conservative leadership candidate since the Conservatives have adopted this method of electing their leaders. And time will tell, but it is unlikely that any PM since Churchill has walked into a more complicated inbox. There is a need for announcements on energy bills and other cost of living concerns essentially immediately, and it looks like we'll see them in the next few days. Also, this trust walks into a horrific polling landscape for Conservative parties with some polls showing that Labour have up to a 17-point lead. Turn, have a turn of phrase there, things can only get better for trust, surely. But my sort of brief overview of thoughts is probably nothing to do with no, no comparison to actual Conservatives' thoughts. So if he's ready, I was wondering if we could maybe bring in uh, Anthony Pickles, the former Chief of Staff of the Welsh Conservatives. Well, thank you very much for joining us. So I've, I think the first question we really should ask is, why in your mind did Liz Truss win this election? Yeah, so um, it's obviously been a very protracted uh, debate during the summer. Um, there will still be a number of my sort of fellow party members who will be questioning why we had a leadership contest at all. Now, you know, I think the reasons for that were pretty clear, that I think the parliamentary party had 
given up the support that it had lent to Boris Johnson and wanted someone that was going to take forward the manifesto that the party won uh, on in 2019. And I think, you know, there are certain political realities to that. So one of the one of the most obvious things is that, you know, there is still a very, very large parliamentary majority. And what that means is that, you know, Conservative MPs, particularly those that are in their first term, you know, the so-called Red Wallers, but but also others who, you know, came to Parliament with this great expectation that the party had the means to deliver, you know, there weren't the frustrations that they'd had in the previous Parliament with Brexit, there weren't the frustrations of a coalition, etc., would see, you know, pure Conservative policy delivery. And, you know, that hasn't happened um, in this, the purity that they would have wanted. So, you know, pandemic's obviously a clear disruption to that. But I think, you know, ultimately, a lot of it came down to competence and people's frustrations that number 10, the number 10 operation under Boris Johnson just wasn't good enough. Um, you know, his attention to detail, you think about things like the CBI speech that he gave earlier in the year and the like, you know, these great reset moments just didn't feel like they connected. So what will they be hoping for from, from Trust is basically to sort of get back on course. You know, the pandemic does feel like it's sort of behind us. Um, and I think, you know, party members particularly, but MPs more broadly will be hoping that the messages begin to connect back with voters. So, you know, this this protracted debate that we've had over the summer is all well and good in terms of party membership, but that message now needs to be converted into a wider discussion that voters at large are going to start to engage with, because otherwise, you know, those polls that you just referenced are going to become the backdrop and the feature you know, that people, commentators, voters, people like us are going to talk about all the way through to the next general election, whenever that might be, but let's presume in two years' time. The polling lead for Labour has grown over the summer. You'd think a, a Conservative leadership contest where two candidates are putting forward their ideas that they think can, you know, revolutionise and change the country for the better would be something that could make more people want to vote Conservative, but it's, it seems to have done something of the opposite kind of help this leadership debate can it in terms of the public's opinion on the seriousness of the conservatives in a really serious crisis such as the cost of living crisis uh, and do you think that you've actually basically maybe handed labor the next election with two candidates willing to take lumps out of each other for so long so personally i felt it was slightly self-indulgent both the length of it and the way that it was organized so i think mps could have done a quicker job of whittling down um, the slate of candidates the way that the election was held could have been curtailed. And I don't think Conservative Party members are necessarily, uh, you know, the arbiters of, you know, the, where the country should be going. And I think the process just could have been uh, much quicker. Now, let's set that aside. Where where are we now? We've had a massive debate about, you know, kind of what, what the Conservative Party should be right now. And one of the one of the things that Liz Trust now needs to do is to convert this stuff into basically both a personal manifesto and something that she can challenge Labour on. So what voters are thinking about is all the obvious things that we see in the press day to day at rising inflation. You know, they're seeing that their money's not going as far as it should. They're seeing energy prices increase. They're seeing, uh, you know, a war in Ukraine, which obviously um, is giving, uh, you know, food for thought in terms of all sorts of, of, of thoughts on what Britain is today and what the West is today. And these are things that obviously concern people. So that is not about what party members think. That's about a much broader agenda. And I think that's what she needs to engage with. Now, 
in in a way her premiership could almost be defined within this this week that we're talking right now so um she's got her first prime minister's questions we've already had her speech from the steps of downing street people voters will um you know basically be coming up with their thoughts on her as we speak and then she then needs to basically demonstrate how she can deal with this crisis that we face on all of these external pressures so you know it's a very very heavy intray and she's going to have to demonstrate fairly quickly that she is the person that can can grapple with these things now on the flip side of that Keir Starmer and the the Labour front bench know that they've got to frame the the argument frame the debate they need to work out where the government is basically you know not cited enough on various policy areas they need to be working out kind of what the core elements are that are concerning voters that you know, action from Liz Truss's government is is basically lacking. And I think, you know, part of what we've seen through the pandemic and before is that Keir Starmer's main job has been putting his own house in order. And he now needs to basically do the same thing that Liz Truss is doing. So it's a it's basically a battle of whose argument is most coherent to the country at large. And that's what we're going to see play out over the next year or so. But you know, as as I said in the, the, the beginning of my answer, a lot of these issues are going to be basically decided in the first week of her premiership. And do you think that the party feels divided? Because we've been told for so long that people don't vote for divided parties. And it doesn't feel like the party, although it has only been a day and a half, it doesn't feel like the party is in much of a position to to come together and, and fight that next general election at the moment. And I think that you see already with the the number of appointments to the cabinet of the first cabinet of this trust, they seem to be from one particular part of the party. Do you find that worrying at all? So it's what we mean by the party. I mean, ultimately, the the most important element is what the parliamentary party do. Do they realise that with two years to go, they've got to get behind her, they've got to get on board with her agenda, whether they voted for it or not? Or are they going to use the various mechanisms that exist to sort of challenge and, and create frustrations? Now, the biggest advantage she's got is that she inherits this big majority, bigger than any conservative leader has had for, for decades. And she knows that most of the legislation, most of the parliamentary battles that she needs to have, she can ultimately win. So if her political strategy and the team that she builds around her can deliver, then ultimately she she should be able to see off the naysayers. But part of that, as we know, is is presentation it's the way that she crafts arguments that she wins people over she gets them on side and i think one of the things that you know we've seen in the leadership contest is that she was almost the sort of surprise outsider that got into the final two you know in the first basically two or three weeks not many people were talking about her they were talking about the other candidates you know kemi badnot penny morden and the like they weren't necessarily talking about her so you know she she has shown that she can build a consensus she's she has had some in a surprising uh, supporters within the party uh, people that are on different wings but as you say her cabinet tonight looks like it's people who back her and i think the reason that she's doing that is because she wants to build a base of people who do ultimately support the philosophy that she's going to pursue and the parliamentary party you know will respond to that but they're going to respond depending on her communication style depending on how she commands uh, the commons the way that she goes out 
voters' initial reactions, the way she deals with various policy issues within the current crises, you know, inflation and the like. So, you know, there's there's a very, very difficult tightwalk for her to, to um, take on. But, you know, that is the test of any leader. And she will be aware of that. And I suppose in a way, you know, the, the length of this leadership election means that she has had quite a lot of time basically to work out that strategy since, you know, she has be- looked like the, the um, you know, the front runner. What, what do you think this means for the Conservatives in Wales, And I think we all saw from the, the nomination process, there weren't actually that many Welsh MPs or MSs that backed Liz. But do you think that the membership in Wales is happy? So it's a really good question. She will know Andrew R.T. Davis is a, a popular figure within the membership in Wales. That will have become clear. Um, it will have become clear through the way that she sort of campaigned. So, yes, there was only one hustings in Cardiff, which, you know, probably made very little difference to the campaign as a whole. But she will know that the the, the figures on the ground will speak for the, the membership. And I think to, to a large degree, she will probably take soundings from from Andrew. It will also be interesting to see who she picks as uh, Welsh Secretary. I mean, as we speak, it might well have been decided. I don't know. But, um, you know, that figure is the, is the voice of Wales around the cabinet table. So it's got to be someone that can work in partnership with the team in in Cardiff Bay. In my experience, uh, when I when I was chief of staff, the um, the biggest battle was when you had a divergence between the person in London that was leading the charge, i.e., Welsh Secretary, and the leader. And you know, during my time, we had various figures do the role. But you know, when you had someone like David T. Um, David Jones um, and Andrew, who just did not get on, it caused huge ructions because people would flow one way or the other, you know, i.e. Um, MSs. If you've got basically a cohesion in political strategy between the two and they understand the delineation of power and influence, um, then it can probably work quite smoothly. And I would imagine that Liz Truss will probably stay out of it to a large degree. So it just depends on what that relationship and what that balance uh, begins to look like. And I've got one more question before uh, before I, I pass on to somebody else. But um, what do you think Liz Trust means for the union? So I think one of the interesting things about her is that she's not a home county's Tory. So, that, and, and I think it's really important. If you look at the the leaders of the UK parties, they're up until, well, this morning, they were all London MPs. Um, and I think that matters. So... The fact that she has spent time outside of um, the home counties and outside of the capital matters because those people see the country differently and it, and it, and it, and it does make a difference. So she, she will understand that the way that the United Kingdom politics operates is different. She will know, you know, from her experience dealing with departments like DEFRA, where devolution do come into play in a very, very big way, that, you know, there are, there are divergencies, that policy levers rest in different hands and the like. And that, and that, I think, is quite important in terms of her experience and her understanding. But she, she will want to park the debate on the constitution so you know you you can look at the way that the leadership election has unfolded and party 
Conservative Party members are just not interested, particularly in constitutional debates, unless it's about Brexit. Um, you know, when it came to the union, there, there wasn't really much of a feature there. And that's because it's just not part of their agenda. So for people like us on this podcast and those that are listening, you know, we are interested in these things. So we will have been left sort of, you know, rubbing our hands together thinking, well, why is this not being talked about more? It's a big issue. And we all know the frictions that exist with the different parties and different nations. Um, she will want to park it, right? So, so part of that will have to be how she manages her own party. So what does she do with the Scottish Conservatives, for example, where there has been friction, you know, with Jacob Rees-Mogg's comments earlier in the year? What does she do in Wales with, with Andrew and the team? How does she deal with um, the issues where the UK government still has large amounts of sway? So you, you were talking about levelling up earlier on. You know, that, that obviously is a key lever. What are the funds that exist there? How does she frame that debate? Um, in the guise of the union. But let, let's not forget, she's got two years. So, you know, part of this is going to have to be showing that she understands the sensitivities, that she can communicate beyond her base, and that the average voter in um, nations beyond England can, can, can look at her and think that she's someone that has some understanding of what their lives look and feel like, ultimately. Thank you very much, Anne. And uh, please stick around if you want to. But I'm going to bring in, uh, I'm going to bring in Jonathan Williams now to talk about the potential legal ramifications of the Lutra government. Thank you very much for coming to talk to us this evening. Would you mind introducing yourself for everyone who's here? Uh, so my name is Jonathan Williams. I'm uh, a solicitor at Watkins and Gunn, uh, and uh, for my sins, also the co-founder of UBR Lab Wales. Um, we've talked a little bit, you know, off off uh, off mic about some of the potential issues that may present themselves as a consequence of a Liz Trust premiership in a legal sphere. Something that a lot of people are concerned about is the potential for human rights reform under a trust premiership. Yeah, of course. So I, I think it's important really to compartmentalise the legacy issues of Johnson. So things like the, the Bill of Rights, uh, the Rwanda policy, some of the anti-trade union laws that he implemented. And then in addition to that, sort of the policies that uh, have been discussed recently, uh, the list Trust is probably looking at. So I think that the, the most recent one, you know, I think people probably saw it, the, the big splash in the Times, which mentioned that... Uh, she was looking to roll back essentially a lot of workers' rights um, that we gain from the EU. So, you know, for example, a lot of a lot of our rights sort of copied and pasted, if you will, um, through the European Union uh, Withdrawal Agreement Act. I think a lot of those are up for grabs now, particularly not, uh, particularly because uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg. I think he's not one for regulations and and, and uh, workers' rights and that kind of thing. So, that a lot of things that have been uh, mooted is sort of the um, the repeal of 48 hours, the protection of, for people where, for example, uh, if you refuse to work more than 48 hours in a week, uh, your plot employer can dismiss you. So I think that's uh, that's being looked at. Uh, in addition to that, you've got sort of uh, the guarantee of holiday pay uh, of four weeks. That's on the table and rest breaks and, and all of those types of things as well. And I think the most worrying thing really is that she doesn't need any primary legislation in order to in order to repeal any of these because they're regulations so it, they can all be removed with statutory instruments uh, you don't have to go through the rigmarole of you know white papers green papers a million gazillion committees and all the rest of it uh, they can essentially be 
uh, repealed by the minister in charge. So Jacob Rees-Mogg, by the looks of it, I think, again, just to stick with employment at the moment, I think there could potentially be um, a chopping of unfair dismissal uh, rights as well. So, you know, at the moment, you've got two years. Uh, well, you need to be in employment for two years. Um, and, and once you pass that two years, um, you can then bring a claim for unfair dismissal unless, um, you know, you're discriminated against or anything like that. That could potentially be extended, so it, they could make it so it's three years, and again, that makes it easier for businesses to get rid of people. So, I think those things are up for grabs, and then you've got the trade union laws as well. Then, so we've seen a recent renaissance, I think, of of the trade unions. You've got the "Enough is Enough" campaign, and and there's real you know pushback with sort of workers' rights and and pay rises, and people obviously going on strike uh, as well. And I think that's frightened uh, the Tories. So. The first thing that they did um, was to introduce or repeal rather regulation in uh, in relation to um, employers uh, being allowed to replace striking workers with with agency or temporary workers. So they they now can do that. And I think there's been talk or certainly commitments during the hustings by both candidates uh, to basically get rid of people's ability to, to strike in critical industries. So I'd imagine that would be nurses, teachers, uh, train drivers and that kind of thing. So I think those are certainly ones to look out for. Uh, I think uh, fracking is on the agenda uh, as well. Uh, So I think Liz Trust said something along the lines of uh, shovels will be in the ground to secure our energy uh, future. So I think that you're probably likely to see a reversal on the end of uh, on the ban of fracking. Um, so at the moment, it's all but impossible to, to frack in this country because you've got the Infrastructure Act, um, which is uh, it practically prohibits uh, fracking because there's so many tricky planning laws in place. Of course, you've got, again, and I keep going on about him, but Jacob Rees-Mogg, this will be his brief. You know, he's not someone that's too concerned with annoying the green lobby, shall we say. So I think that will certainly be on the agenda. And of course, with Ukraine, uh, with the war in Ukraine, that will give them a reason to do it as well. So that's another one to look out for, which is... John, if I can come in there, just one sec. Of course. Uh, so this is two questions in one, and I don't want to lose the thread of what you were saying earlier when I go into what I'm asking now. You've talked about employment law and employment yeah. rights, and I want to talk a little bit about devolution and the potential rollback for devolution under the next UK government. Mm-hmm. When the Welsh government starts to introduce legislation like the Social Partnership Bill, are the, the rights and the aims of the Welsh Government in this area under threat directly from UK Government, assumed to be UK Government policy, uh, not only in employment, but also in terms of the rollback of devolution? I think we've seen under Boris Johnson, you know, that, you know, with the Internal Market Act and, and as I mentioned, the anti-trade union laws, that there's a, uh, there's a rollback of devolution. I think the important thing to remember is that Parliament is sovereign. So... You know, trust can do what she wants. Welsh government can shout and stamp their feet all they want, but if they introduce an act in Parliament and it's passed, then Welsh go- they can override anything the Welsh government does. So, of course, you know, devolution is kind of always under threat. But if you've got a government who are, uh, you know, that they don't really, they're not really bothered about devolution and um, they don't mind, you know, annoying people, then uh, in Welsh government, then it's certainly, uh, it's certainly under threat. Yeah, absolutely. John, thank you very much. Thanks so much for coming to speak to us. I've got one more question. I mean, there's an awful lot of people concerned about the appointment of Suella Braveman as uh, Home Secretary. 
Where do you think the Trust Premiership leaves the rights of refugees and asylum seekers in the UK and in Wales? Well, we've seen what, what they wanted to do with uh, the Bill of Rights. So, uh, for example, that there was they want to repeal the Human Rights Act, and the Human Rights Act essentially says that you have to interpret uh, domestic law to give effect to our convention rights. And uh, the Bill of Bill of Rights essentially said that domestic law should take precedence. Now, the issue is that it's, it'll be difficult for people to bring claims in, in the UK, for example, because essentially now the, the, the courts will, like I said, give effect to domestic law. But because we're still signed up to the European Convention on Human Rights, then you know, if it ever goes to the European Court on Human Rights, then they'll, then they'll win there anyway. So it makes it more difficult for people to, to secure their rights. And I think they've, they've mentioned that they want to make it more difficult for people to rely on Article 8, um, which is the right and respect to family life. But like I said, again, you know, it's it'd be difficult to sort of go through the UK courts. and, and it, But if you keep pursuing it, you go past the Supreme Court and into the European Courts of uh, Human Rights, then then they'll just say that the decision was wrong by the UK courts. But then it's what do they do after that? And I suppose that that's that's the question. Do they breach interna- international law? Because that that's that's essentially what they would be doing if uh, if the court ruled against them. John, thanks so much for coming to talk to us. No problem. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to introduce uh, Professor Calvin Jones again. We had a brief moment with him earlier when everyone was waiting to get into the space, but I'm going to ask him a few more questions on the economy. Calvin, are you there? I am indeed. Thank you again for coming to speak with us today. Um, so I just, you know, very broad question to begin with. What was your assessment of Tressy's economic promises made throughout the campaign? So, so what's the fair to say? I'm not really a macroeconomist. They are, some, somebody called them Corbyn-esque. Um, and that's, that, that's, in terms of their, they're far more not Corbyn-esque in terms of their unfunded nature. You know, I mean, I mean the, the, the idea of, of cutting taxes um, in the way that was suggested, uh, you know, um, both person tax and business taxes, does leave you with the, this kind of overhang of a deficit and debt, which is, you know, she seems very happy to, to see go up in the short term. Um, and obviously, the UK can sustain that for a period. I mean, the UK can sustain that for a period because it, it's got its own currency and print more money to write off any debt that it burdens itself with. But of course, that does require confidence um, by people to buy you know, government gilts and bonds and so on and whatever else, um, and to invest in the UK. And of course, what we've seen in the last few years and increasingly is a, is a staggering reduction in the value of sterling. You know, and, and you do wonder, given what's happened in the last three or four years, particularly given the way that the UK has, has rolled back on a number of international obligations um, you know, around Brexit, you know, that, that confidence in the UK, I think, will narrow. Uh, and that has implications for how far the UK can stand, stand around a, a kind of heavy level of debt. And what I think is more concerning, really, is, you know, there, there's an argument that you can and should run a very high levels of deficit and debt, uh, particularly when you've got things like the current cost of living crisis. Um, but there seems to be no real kind of rationale behind why that's being run. You know, it's, it's we want to cut taxes on business because that will make the economy grow. And any economist who is their salt, there are, there are handfuls of economists who would claim that low, ta- low tax rates mean faster growth. I mean, it's not historically correct. Uh, you know, we saw that the highest rates of growth in the West uh, in the sort of post-war period, particularly 60s and 70s, you know, the Thatcher's tax cutting regime occurred at the same time as growth reduced in the UK. Uh, you know, we, we saw 
periods of great austerity in the noughties and you know um sorry in the in the tweens teens uh where we had abysmal growth uh because tax cutting works if companies then can reinvest that money in genuinely innovative, productive things which bring wider prosperity, which means people are then able to spend more money and grow the economy. Um, if you think growing the economy is the right thing to do. Because none of that has happened in the last 10 years or more in the UK. We've seen a stagnation in wages, we've seen a stagnation in uh, productivity, and there's nothing that I've seen so far from this trust which has any hope of changing that? I mean, there's no way that you know, what you have. If you, if you cut tax on business corporation tax, they'll just pay more dividends out to shareholders. That's exactly what's happened in the US. This is exactly what will, has happened in the UK, and what will continue to happen uh, because you know there, there are fewer and fewer avenues, particularly in our very kind of resource constrained, immiserated kind of world with proletariat can't afford to buy anything anymore. There are very few ways of making genuinely interesting new products, innovations, and money. Uh, so you find these really interesting kind of share buybacks and other ways in which companies seek to, you know, kind of increase their value and so on without actually doing anything very interesting and new. And I've not seen anything at all which suggests that trust or anyone around her has any answer to this this stagflation problem, this problem of of absolute, a dearth of new ideas. Uh, and of course, where you know, if you look around the world where the new ideas are happening, is in places like the green economy. Uh, you know, where we see things like artificial intelligence, where you've you've been you know, over expecting for years and you know years in terms of what that might mean uh you know the meta space uh, however we call it is is not of interest really to me what is interest is the massive reduction in costs of offshore wind which has meant that it's now the cheapest way to generate electricity in the uk it's astonishing compared to where we were even 10 years ago you know let alone 20. that's where the innovation's happening and that seems to be the place that liz truss is least interested in and that that to me is really worrying calvin i'm going to crush two together two of my questions that i had so one, I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, the pound and the guild markets today have looked very concerning. But also when you factor that in with the proposed £100 billion spend on, on freezing energy bills, it's if, if the pound is weak, surely that £100 billion figure that we've been, that's been talked about is going to only go up and actually pile more and more onto the national debt. Uh, and potentially, if Trust wants to continue with the slashing taxes could actually lead to a, potentially a cut in public services too. So, so I think you know, this is a very complicated area. Uh, ta- taxes don't pay for public services, otherwise you have to wait to the end of the tax year to get any public to get any nurses. Um, it's really about how far you can sustain the levels of debt you're talking about and how far you are prepared to inflate your way out of those levels of debt. So the 100 billion of debt um, is not a problem if you are prepared to see consistent, very high rates of inflation, which inflate that debt away to a point where 100 billion um, of, of sterling is worth, you know, 50 billion euros or something. You know, this, there, there are mechanisms to reduce debt, but they're very painful mechanisms because what that means is that the little iPhone I've got in my hand now, um, instead of costing, I don't know how much this was new, I didn't buy it new, uh, 700 pounds will cost 1,000 pounds or 1,500 pounds because there are, there are costs to all these policies. Um, so what you see is a lowering of welfare and well-being, particularly when you're looking at this very globalised internationalised economy we've got, if you ha- inflate your way out of the debt crisis. Now, I think what Trust is suggesting is that we somehow put this way, this cap freeze um, onto future energy bills, which is, of course, in terms of uh, you know future generations, um, extremely problematic for a couple of reasons first because they're not the ones who are being warmed at the moment so you know if we if we do ask you know the, the impoverished student of or, or, or pensioner of 2040 to pay back the bills you know that are being 
subsidise of a very rich person in 2022. That's simply not fair. You know, there are real issues of intergenerational equality here. And the other issue is that you have to assume that we'll be more able to pay this back in 2014, 2015. Now, my work for the last 15, 20 years has suggested the opposite will be true. You know, I mean, I was decrying the energy crunch and the massive impact this would have on um, the cost of living in 2010. I was just twelve years too early. What, what my work suggests is that energy is going to get more difficult to access. You know, it's going to get worse and worse. And so our ability to pay back the energy cap freeze money now, right? what's happening is Liz is going to subsidise energy companies, give them our money effectively, give them our future money, so they will continue to give us gas at a lower price now, which is great for the energy companies. They've got a guaranteed payback and guaranteed revenue into the future. But, of course, for families, we have to hope 2030 is not worse than 2020 or 2022, because if it is, it's going to be even more painful to pay that money back. And, of course, this optimism we've had in progress through the 20th century and the early part of the 21st century, up to 28, has just been washed away. I mean, the, the economy has not grown. Things have got progressively more difficult, more fragmented, more unequal over the, the, this last period, last 10 years and the last 30 before, in fact. And the problem then is that this layering of debt onto the future implies quite a lot of pain and I don't know that that's been thought through in any significant way. Calvin, what do you think the impact of Truss's premiership will be on replacement EU funding and the levelling up agenda that was promised for Wales? It's very hard to say. I mean, you know, what we've had up until now is a robust Welsh Secretary who has been very active in trying to push, um, you know, the the Westminster government into the kind of um, the Welsh sphere. You know, obviously the new office in Cardiff and and the way in which um, the Internal Marks Act has worked. To the detriment of the Welsh government, but I mean, you know, I, I, I've talked to one or two council leaders who say, well, frankly, you know, at least there's no somebody else in the room apart from the Welsh government, and we only have, don't have one person to go with a begging bowl to. There's no two different people, which is, I suppose, progress of a sort. So we might see a continuation of that. We might see money continue to be spent in a levelling up fashion, albeit obviously at a much lower rate than the EU would, would have ever done. You know, I mean, you know, we're talking about if we're lucky, 10% of the level that we've seen, you know, in the last sort of 10 years um, in the sort of various levelling up funds. So we might see that continue. But again, the problem is the one of, of strategy. I mean, I, I and many others criticise Welsh government spending of the European funds because it's been quite fragmented, not strategic, very bureaucratic. That's, of course, kind of worse in a sense because you've got the UK government trying to spend these sorts of monies with no understanding of local conditions on the ground, no real interest in local conditions on the ground. And with, of course, this big, big P political kind of tweaking of things like the, you know, the, the, the mechanisms by which, by which the money is spent, which, which you know, rewards um, constituencies they want to reward rather than those most in need. So, uh, you know, I, I never thought, I mean, I, you know, I always said that the, the EU funds were sticking plaster on an amputation. You know, if you think about Hamda the Valleys, for example, uh, you know, following the open of the economy in the 1980s, you know, the, even at the level of hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of euro, that was never going to change the reality of life in the South Wales Valleys and in maybe the rural areas of Wales. So it's, it's not going to be a panacea. But of course, it never was. And I think, again, you know, if we're looking for glimmers of light, if you like. It's, I think it's very clear that under a trust premiership, Wales is absolutely on its own. You know, um, There may be continuing noises from Westminster about how interested they are in levelling up, but I, I remember you know, post-Brexit, um, you know, then First Minister Cameron Jones saying not a penny less, 
basically Welsh government said that for two or three years and where did it get us? You know, we got us to like 90% pennies less. Um, and now it's really absolutely clear that Mark Drakeford and whoever takes over from him will have a really difficult pitch to play on and we have to really think about how we want to engage with the, the Westminster government whilst making sure that we can do everything in our power not to rely on them, I think, to be honest. Calvin, thanks so much for talking to us. I've got one more question before you go and I wanted to turn specifically to climate it's you know it's being widely reported that Jacob Rees-Mogg will be responsible for that role in the UK government what's your prediction for UK government action slash inaction in that area and how well do you think that will be reconcilable with Welsh government plans to deal with climate change um well so I mean I mean you know I think one has to be careful because obviously Liz Trust in the campaign was speaking to well-off southeastern based conservatives who don't like wind farms so that there may be an element of the reality is offshore wind is simply the cheapest and and you know um when quasi Harteng sits at his desk in the treasury his civil servants will be telling him you know you can frack if you want but the cost of investment time of payback um is, is frankly horrific I mean, i've written reports on this at welsh and uk level and fracking simply doesn't make any sense whatsoever in the uk I and mean, it just doesn't i mean it makes marginal sense in the us but certainly even forgetting the climate purely based on, on on your return of investment fracking is, is a non-start in the UK. So I think some of those realities will hit quite quickly. And then what we'll see is a pivot towards what the UK government always does, uh, which is to, to focus on nuclear, uh, you know, and, and continue to talk about a new, a new nuclear fleet uh, as a way of solving our energy problems. Uh, unfortunately, of course, what we've not seen from any Conservative government um, in the last... 12 years, any sort of holistic energy strategy for the UK within which can, Wales can find its place. So what we have in Wales is a prospect, I think, of the new government being utterly disinterested, for example, in the shape of the grid. You know, so Jacob Rees-Mogg, if he is at, at business, uh, you know, for a long time, will will not be pushing to increase the capability of the grid to take on Welsh solar or wind um, or, or Celtic sea renewables. Uh, you know, so I think those problems already are choking our ability to be net zero in Wales will probably continue and may even get worse. Uh, and at the same time, we will see lots of talk, I think, on on, on what are seen as big, almost culture war issues, things like fracking, uh, you know, despite the fact it's, um, it's, it's it's very unpopular, things like M4 Relief Road. And I think what, you know, what we have to recognise is that, I mean, I said this on Twitter, so I'll say here, you know, I think there is, there are times when, particularly if you have non-energy, governments pitch things which are not only economically fairly nonsensical, uh, such as fracking, um, but also vote losers. I mean, nobody likes fracking. It's, it, you, know, you look at it and you think it's bizarre why it is um, that, that, that a government would kind of go into this space, really. But then you wonder, you know, I mean, I mean, it's fairly well known that I think, you know, this Trust's campaign was, was organised, you know, from, from, from a number of think tanks who are certainly on the right, uh, you know, whose, whose funding is not very transparent. Um, and you wonder about whether the messages that this Trust is getting from some of her backers, you know, this is always concerned with Boris Johnson, never quite knew, you know, um, um, who is kind of, you know, whose backers were. I think now it's, it's more clear who the backers are. Um, and if we think, if we look at the output of people like the Adam Smith Institute, uh, people like Policy Exchange, uh, you know, the, the kind of Tufton Street crowd, if you like, uh, you know, that, that seems to be the sort of agenda that Liz Trust is very much pushing. You know, it's one about rewarding capital over labour, you know, 
reducing the labour share of national income through things like reduction of union power, uh, reduction of the ability to strike and to, uh, to I, I was already heard from Jonathan, to, to, to sue for unfair dismissal and so on. Um, and of course, these agendas um, are big business agendas. They're not small business agendas, they're big business agendas. So I think, you know, what we what we're seeing here, you know, to finish is Thatcherism on steroids, um, but without even, I think, much of a genuine ideological underpinning, which I think Thatcher, for all her many faults, did have. I think what we're seeing now is really um, a Conservative Party which is very much aligned with, I won't say in hoc too, I won't know that, but it's very much aligned with the sort of messages that have come out from, from right-wing think tanks for the last 12 years, and of course, which many of these um, members of the government you know, were writing about in Britannia Unchained um, 12 years ago, and now, effectively, you know, unfortunately, they've won, and we just have to see what they do with their winnings. Calvin, thank you so much uh, for speaking with us. So I wanted to finally, as our last speaker, bring in Owen Williams. Uh, Owen, the, the questions I wanted to ask you relate primarily to the campaigns we've seen and the campaigns we are likely to see in, in the future. So how would you rate the two leadership campaigns that led us to this result? On social media, um, fairly dire, in all honesty. But what's, I mean... You asked me to do due diligence on this. I've been looking at the last three months in terms of interactions on Facebook. So they really only started their campaigns around the end of June. And to be honest with you, Rishi Sunak's campaign got underway in electric pace. Um, whereas Liz Truss has been a much slower burn. There are questions, obviously, for, for campaign teams going forward on whether you go for a big splash, uh, big beast splash at first, or whether you whether you go slower further in. And and it's a you know, it's an interesting question. I mean, Rishi Sunak did start off from a much larger base, much, much larger base of followers um on Facebook, hundreds of thousands of followers on Facebook compared to Liz Truss's for for much of it, only about twenty four thousand followers on Facebook. So he has a presence. I mean, that old dishy rishy thing a couple of years ago. He has a presence uh, amongst a grouping of people who are not necessarily Conservative Party members, possibly Conservative Party voters. He's a much larger following there, whereas Liz Truss is following from the data sample I'm presented with here. It seems to be more of a um, a Conservative following, Conservative Party member um, voter base. So, I mean, I was looking at I was looking at the sort of video views over the course of the last uh, three months, and Sunak's video views are in the millions, um, four point five million video views over the course of three months. Whereas Lidstress is only on two hundred thirty thousand, less than a quarter of a million views. So, the the difference between video views is staggering, but the the reality is, is that unlike a general election, where um, there's there's a lot you can harness within the body of Facebook in particular, and I, I constantly argue that Facebook is a far more telling version of what the people are thinking as opposed to Twitter, because Twitter is effectively a, an echo chamber of your own design, whereas Facebook pages can tell you so much more. Um, but in terms of Facebook, it does feel like very much an interaction rate from people who are not registered members of the Conservative Party and therefore will not have a vote, because you're looking at millions of views as opposed to the few hundred thousand Liz Truss got, which is more indicative of where she was and where she ended up in the race. It, it is in August the 1st where Liz Truss's interactions really took off, though, because Penny Mordaunt 
backed her on August the 1st. And of course, the, the moment Penny Mordaunt backed Liz Truss, then you see um, a pickup in terms of her post counts. She went from sort of a, a very limited number of posts over the course of the campaign up to that point. And then it just accelerated on Facebook. Um, in terms of how many posts she was she was publishing over the course of time, um, there is a follow. The follower chart is just interesting because you start Rishi Sunak starts with a base of one hundred twelve thousand and ends up uh, one hundred seventy five thousand followers. Whereas Liz Truss started a base of sixteen thousand and heads up to fifty four thousand by by um, today. So that's a follower growth for Rishi Sunak of fifty five percent. But for Liz Truss, it's a follower, it's a follower growth on Facebook of 228%. And if you look at the last 30 days, that's over, that's over a three-month period. For the last 30 days, um, Rishi Sunak has gained another, you know, some 20,000 followers in, in 30 days. Whereas Liz Truss has gained an extraordinary, um, you know, extraordinary number, doubled, doubled her figures. Why would you follow her otherwise until the point at which she's expected to become prime minister? There's no real reason to, to fangirl or fanboy over Liz Truss, whereas Rishi Sunak carried a greater degree of um, a greater degree of tabloid esque um, Hello Magazine, OK Magazine style with him. Um, you know, you see him in the great broadsheets. I mean, Liz Truss, you see the photo shoots, and they are weird photo shoots. Um, that one holding the apple in the black wellies is a bit odd. Um, but there's it, it, it strikes me that the there's an already invested audience there, and that's who they targeted. And and what you see is an interaction rate um, when you weight the pages against each other. So you weight the pages for follower numbers. Um, she gets a greater degree of interaction across the piece than he does because she has a low number of followers, but those uh, followers react more strongly to what she does and engage more strongly and like and share more strongly than the greater number of Rishi Sunak's followers do. So I mean, I, the, the question I suppose that follows on from that is how does Chuck become, to, you know, turn that, that, that strategy uh, and that appeal into a general election campaign where she all needs to appeal to the wider public? <laughs> That is, that is, I think, where the Conservative Party may have backed the wrong horse because Rishi Sunak started from an exceptionally strong base amongst a far wider electorate or a far wider portion of the electorate. Liz Truss doesn't have that. Liz Truss has a strong um, support base amongst a core of... Uh, voters who are already vested in the Conservative Party. You look at populism, she is not a populist leader. Her policies may be quite populist um, going into this election, but how it will be eight months into a, a climate crisis and a cost of living crisis is an entirely different question. Um, whereas Sunak already had that base. Um, I think that some of her choices in her cabinet have not will not endear her to softer voters who may be who may well have been following Rishi Sunak for the Hollywood vibes. Not that I'm claiming for one minute he's Hollywood, but in terms of Hollywood potential within the Conservative Party in the cabinet, last cabinet, that he had he had more than say Jacob Rees Mogg. That these people do not have the support of the wider populace, as far as I can tell from 
from um, analysing some of this data. But arguably, the wrong horse has been backed for an election cycle. The right horse has been backed for a Conservative leadership campaign and by, by extension Prime Minister. You must have seen the, um, the social media campaigns that Labour have been running, which focus on what the two candidates uh, have said each, about each other and about the Conservative government doing this campaign. If you were running Labour social media, would you just run those exact things until the next election? Are you, um, are you trying to get some hints and tips for free off me, Matthew? Um, <laughs> I, this, I think Pete Buttigieg, the, um, the Democratic contender, said it so well during the 2021, 2020 race, 2021 race, whenever it was, against Trump, which he then, you know, he then conceded to, to Biden and Biden went on to win it, obviously. He said um, that focusing on Trump just gives more airtime to Trump and you want to be focusing on how you improve people's lives. You want to be focusing on what makes people's lives better. Admittedly, there's, there's room and there's time for those tabloid attacks. But if all you do is attack, you are seen as a very negative party. And the, the danger is for all political parties that all they do is focus on anger. You know, I mean, it's no secret. I, I was running Yes Cymru, um, the independence campaigns, um, social media during that very prosperous time for Yes Cymru. And there are two things that I did. Uh, one was to relentlessly focus on how uh, the status quo was letting us down. But the other thing was to talk up the opportunity and talk up the positivity and relentless optimism of what could be. And I think that Labour lets itself down by not having that here's what we could do argument. It's also let down by not having a particularly charismatic leader. But as Alistair Campbell said on the excellent Rest of Politics podcast a few weeks ago, also he does his excellent as well, but um, as Alistair Campbell said, you know, it's time for Starmer now to embrace his wonkiness. And I think no one, there's no style consultant there. There's no one, there's no, the press and PR people there are not saying, look, you are not hyper charismatic. He may look very charismatic up against trust. Time will tell. Um, you know, the jokes definitely don't land with a with a conservative gathering of, of um a conservative cohort. So quite how it'll land in Parliament. It all seemed very forced, I imagine. But someone like Starmer needs to embrace that legalistic wonkiness that he has and stop being trying to act and because people see through it. And this is the problem with political parties nowadays. They try and put on a front and actually, you know, I mean, I saw it yesterday. I put up, I put up a video of Adam Price talking to Kathy Newman at Channel Four News about. Oh, it's on my Twitter now. It's it's doing massive numbers. Um, quite why Pride Cymru haven't jumped on it and used it in some way is an entirely different question. So I think there are there are moments the political parties, because of it, because of a lack of lack of funding sometimes. I think because of a lack of resourcing. They, you know, particularly at a Welsh level, but they're not recognising this is the stuff. This is the stuff we need to generate engagement because that's what social media is. It's the word, it's that word social. And it's so easy to forget that. It's not purely about anger-inducing content. And that is, that's very much the Vote Leave playbook. That's very much the Conservative 2019 playbook is make people annoyed, you know. Whereas there is room for that positive emotion. And that is what, yes, Cymru did during that period. Yes, it did a bit of the look at what they're doing, look how Jacob is more talks, look the fact that UNICEF is now feeding children in that this is not how it should be in Wales, you know, and so on and so forth. That stuff pulls people on side, but also that relentless positivity. And what we get from Labour right now, UK Labour, they are 
focusing on everyone else. You've got to, you've got to talk about what you would do as a party of government. And there's a chance, you know, Matthew, that maybe they're thinking, yeah, but we don't want to give away what, we, what, what we're getting up to. I think you've got to, though. You've got to, because that's how you bring people around to your messaging. It can't purely, if, you're, if your lead is not charismatic, focus on the fact that he's a policy wonk and make people go, ah, at least he knows what he's talking about. And this is where people like, you know, Buddha Judge is an example. Yeah, he's got more charisma, though, I'll be honest. But he's, he's also got an eye for the detail, and people appreciate that. And I think that, you know, you see that with some of Adam Price's interviews a couple of years ago. Um, very detail-orientated, stilted sometimes in the manner of speech, but but very detail-orientated. And right now in the sort of post-truth world that we live in, we've got a guts full of people like Trump and Johnson. There is a real, real need and a room for honesty, truth-telling and uh, and data, and d- people, people who are wonky. Owen, thanks so much uh, for everything you've said this evening and for joining us on the space. I think we've got one one question in so far, and I'm going to go to Ant uh, very quickly for his thoughts on it. Will Liz Truss deliver the Brexit that Wales voted for? Well, that's a good. It's a very good question. So, you know, the, I suppose the long tail of this is that there's lots of regulatory uh, ends still to be tied up, and the biggest issue of the lot is what happens uh, in Northern Ireland, not least with uh, devolution settlement, because um, the uh, you know the coming weeks we'll see. Uh, the sort of sunset clause of the current assembly reached, and part of that. You know, will be defined by how she deals with um, issues around the the border and the protocol. So it's still going to be an issue. Um, I think the, the 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 main question will be how much she chooses to define Brexit related issues, whether it's around trade or whether it's around the sort of language of, of Brexit into the next election. Because I think you know, obviously. It was a feature of the 2019 general election for obvious reasons, but whether voters' minds are still on these type of things uh, going into 2024 or whenever the general election is, is a different question entirely. So will she have tied up Brexit? Well, probably not, because I think we're, we're looking at many, many years of the regulatory loose ends still being there and being a feature, certainly of British administration, at least. John, did you have anything to add on that? You know, absolutely right, uh, what, what Anne said. I suppose, like I said earlier on, like, the, the worry is is that you know with a lot of these le- regulations, there's the minister in charge can can actually um, just change the laws rather than you having any primary legislation. So there's serious lack of scrutiny there. Uh, you know, you can sort of table it late at night where there's not many people uh, in the House of Commons. So um, those are the types of things that need to be looked at for. And probably, I think people probably remember these things uh, called well these statutory instruments. Uh, being called um, Henry VIII's laws, so um, that's the type of thing that um, people need to look out for. I suppose, yeah. We've had one more uh, question in via DM, and I think John, you're probably best place to to start with this. Do you think we will see more UK government legislation that overlaps with devolved competencies under PM Trust, such as the Internal Market Act, etc.? Yeah, I, well, I think when, when you look at who she's elected um, into a cabinet, I, I don't see any reason why that wouldn't be the case. You know, I think um, we've got the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg, for example, I know I keep referring to him, but he's a good example, particularly because he's now being 
given such a such a wide brief uh, with a business secretary role, I think yeah they they'll certainly introduce legislation that uh, that could overrule uh, the Welsh government. I think it's a worrying time for devolution, to be perfectly honest. Uh, and I, and and like I said earlier on, I, I'm not sure other than shouting and stamping what what Welsh government can do really. Yeah, it's, it's a difficult time for them. And did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think, you know, obviously we've had very wide-ranging discussion tonight, and I think people will be trying to, you know, navigate what all of this means, whether it be the, the type of people that are in this cabinet or what Liz Truss's sort of philosophy is. But let's not forget that, you know, the timetable is probably the most important feature because there is, you know, a very clear defining um, element on the horizon, which is the next general election. So within a year or so, there will be pieces of legislation passed there'll be um you know various commitments made um that will be following on from from this leadership election but ultimately we'll be very very quickly into general election campaigning and you know if, if people feel you know threats of devolution or workers rights or whatever the issues are that people have uh, raised tonight as being you know major concerns then you know the, the the opposition need to frame the the debate in the um forthcoming campaign for that general election on those issues and make um, the Conservatives, you know, sort of lay out their stall and answer. And I think, you know, we can speculate an awful lot as, um, you know, we would do, of course we would on this type of podcast, but ultimately we're going to be very, very quickly into campaigning territory. And I think, you know, the, the opposition parties shouldn't forget that because that's where you know the 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 election is going to be fought, and to varying degrees, other leaders of the opposition in um, in the lab in the recent Labour history have been fairly good at framing general elections on their issues. We haven't seen so much of that, partly because the pandemic has been such a feature of the political landscape, partly because Brexit has just been this sort of mammoth issue that has divided so many people for the you know for the past six years or so. Um, you know, now now we're looking at really, really tough domestic agenda items that the opposition have got to frame. And, you know, the Conservative Party have had this, you know, very, very long leadership election, as I said um, to you earlier on in the podcast. And, you know, they've sort of lay, laid out their stall to a degree. Um, but much more of that is going to come as we as we reach sort of 2024. So, yeah. We can speculate, but actually, I think a lot of this stuff is going to be forced out fairly quickly. Uh, I can I can feel Rich shouting at me that we've gone fifteen minutes over, so I'm going to wrap it there. But I just wanted to say a big thanks to all of those who spoke this evening. Uh, that's uh, Ant, John, Owen, and Calvin, uh, and a big thanks to all of you who have joined us for our first ever live virtual event. And we hope to have many more in the future. Just want to say thank you so much again if you don't already do so please subscribe to the here Earth podcast follow us on twitter and facebook at here Earth pod if you want to support us in other ways please feel free to go to our patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash here Earth pod and make sure you are subscribed to the podcast on all your podcast apps here Earth watch politics and you'll hear many many other pods on a huge variety of topics affecting wales and welsh life but just once again from the here Earth team Thank you for listening to Hereith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.